Well, we are in part four of a Bible study on the book of First Peter, and we've entitled this series Scattered, and I hope you're enjoying it. It's an unusual little series because we're teaching it in the midst of a worldwide viral pandemic. That hasn't happened before. And so our new normal feels very inconvenient right now and quite invasive, actually. And we've got all the rules. We've been practicing them for weeks now. Don't gather, no crowds, stand apart, no touching, no handshakes, uh, no high fives. And for all you apostolic people, please, no laying on of hands. And, and we've all been inconvenienced by uh, the policies and the restrictions and, and all of the recommendations. But we're doing it because we're trying to be a help. Uh, we're self-quarantining, we're staying at home, we're self-isolating. And those are difficult restrictions to manage because we draw so much strength from our connection uh, and our interaction one with another, especially when we're part of a church family. Uh, so right now, we do feel quite separated, and like the title of our series, we feel a little bit scattered in our lives and certainly from each other. And that brings us back one more time to a 2,000-year-old letter that was written by the day of Pentecost preacher named Peter. He writes in the very first verse of the very first chapter of this epistle the words that give us our series title. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. These believers are scattered everywhere. They have no opportunity for the close fellowship that we normally enjoy and we miss very much right now. Um, this past week, as our visitation team was interacting with so many of our seniors and shut-ins and making calls, um, as they kind of summarized all of their visits and passed them to Brother and Sister Coy, and they forwarded uh, the, those wonderful reports on to us as pastors, one of the comments that kept coming back over and over again from our visitation team, as they interacted with seniors and shut-ins, they said, now we know how these precious people who are so faithful to their church, but they're shut in, they can't get to service. Now we know how they've been feeling all this time. That's the strength and the beauty of a church family. And, and you know, even in this time of social distancing, we're probably still closer with each other in many ways than these people were. Because they lived in a world where they didn't have FaceTime. They didn't have modern travel. They didn't have uh, social media. They were basically connected only by letters like this one that made their way from one city to another, one church group to another, bringing words of encouragement. Other than that, they were scattered, far apart, isolated. Now, for the past several weeks... During this prolonged time that churches have been restricted from holding any in-house services, there's been a debate that has arisen concerning our right to assemble and our freedom to worship. The majority of pastors and congregations have chosen to abide by the restrictions imposed by our various governments around the world. And we believe that our officials are acting in the best interests of our citizens. And as a church family, we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. However, during that same period of time, there has been a vocal minority of religious leaders that have made very strong statements and have taken very deliberate actions to the contrary 
And of course, you've seen some of them in the media. Now tonight, as we begin and we pick up our study, I'm going to let this ancient epistle explain our position on this controversial modern dilemma. We pick up Peter's letter in the middle of chapter 2 at verse 13. And here's what Peter says to these scattered believers. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see, everything that Christians do should be done for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom. And that includes our relationship to the secular authorities that are in our lives. Employers, bosses, leaders, teachers, professors, police officers, and all government officials. Christians should be the best students in the school, the best employees on the job, and the best citizens in the community. Paul wrote it this way in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Paul told the church in Rome, that every Christian should be obedient. They should be subject to the secular authority. That's what that word powers means. It's secular authority. So every Christian should be obedient or subject to secular authority. And Paul emphasized that all authority is actually put in place by God. Now here's the amazing thing. Paul teaches that to believers who live in the city of Rome during the time of the pagan, brutal Roman Empire. If that principle was true under the Roman emperor, how much more should we today be obedient to secular authority when we live in a free democracy where we are blessed with so many privileges? Now, as Peter picks up the same theme in his epistle, he's not saying that every law or every leader is right or righteous. He's not saying that at all. He's simply saying that we must make every effort to obey authority. It is possible in extreme cases to submit to the institutions and still disobey the laws. For example, when Daniel and his friends refused to obey the Babylonian king's dietary regulations for captives, they disobeyed the law, but they respectfully honored the king. You read what they said and how they interacted. Peter himself and the other disciples, they faced a similar challenge when the Jewish council in Acts 4 and 5 they commanded them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Peter and his friends, the other disciples, respectfully addressed these religious leaders. They honored their position in Jewish society, but they refused to quit preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your Bible teaches us to respect the office 
the office even when we cannot respect the person in the office. The only time scripture ever permits us to disobey the law is when that law would require us to disobey God's word. Otherwise, we are to submit, Peter says, to every ordinance of man, and we do this, quote, for the Lord's sake. In other words, Peter is teaching these believers, scattered like we are right now, he's teaching them your good citizenship is part of your godly testimony. Now, when he says the king, he's obviously referring to the emperor. When he says governors, he's referring to the local officials of the government of Rome. And the king and the governors were certainly not righteous people in Peter's day. But in most cases, those authorities did their job. They acted for the punishment of evildoers, and they acted for the benefit of those citizens that did well. And that is still the role of government today with respect to its citizens. And even when we feel the government is not doing its job correctly, we should still, according to Scripture, still obey authority. And we should always refrain from statements or actions that would compromise our testimony to others or compromise our witness in our community. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to the government or to police officers. That applies to your dealings with businesses as well. It disturbs me when Christians take to social media forums and they critique a hotel, an airline, a restaurant, somebody that disappointed them. Can I just give you a very practical principle from God's word and a very helpful principle in life? That is not the forum for doing that. Make your request. If you need to complain, do so in a private forum because it's not just your relationship with that business that's at stake. It's your testimony as a Christian. There will always be critics of Christians and opponents of churches. We know that. But Peter instructs us. He says this. You need to silence those voices. You need to silence those critics. Literally, muzzle them. That's what that word means. You can muzzle the ignorance of foolish men with your well-doing. In other words, even when they're opposing you, even when they're criticizing you, even when they're hurtful and harmful toward you, you just keep doing well. You just keep obeying God. That's the principle Peter's teaching these believers who lived under the boot heel of the Roman Empire. If they were supposed to do this, and if they could do this, we certainly are required by the word of God to interact with our leaders this way. Paul says very similar words in Romans 12, verse 21. He says, be not overcome of evil, but when evil comes against you, overcome that evil with good. Don't let the wrongdoing or the hurtful, harmful actions or words of the world, don't let that influence you to do wrong in return. Instead, you be the influencer and you overcome their evil with your good. I have to pause to say it's pretty amazing that a 2,000-year-old epistle can speak directly to where we live today. 
That is the power of the word of God. Peter continues in verse 16 and he says, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. And then he gives us rapid fire four principles. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now here's the response, here's the reaction, here's the pushback to all that I've said in the past few minutes. Well, yeah, pastor, we understand what you're saying, but aren't Christians free? And don't we have rights? Oh, yes, we do. But you see, the Bible teaches that the way we use those freedoms and the way we use those privileges, that is part of our service to God, and it is also part of our testimony before the world. So here's what apostolic believers do. We choose to exercise our freedom by submitting to God, not by breaking the rules of society. Let me repeat that. We choose to exercise our freedom by submitting to God, not by breaking the rules of society. We never use our rights, our personal freedoms, to disguise malicious motives. And then he says, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You see, Christians treat everyone with dignity. We honor all men, even if they don't agree with us, even if they're opposed to our ideals and our doctrine and our lifestyle. We honor all men. We treat everyone with dignity. Then we love the brotherhood. We love our church family. The most awkward, terrible, uh, offensive thing about all this right now is that we can't get together, pray together, worship together, uh, serve God together, interact together. That is just horrible for apostolic people. We love going to church. But you see, church is not just here in this building. We love the brotherhood. We love our church family even when we don't see them every week. We love our church family even when we don't always agree with everybody in the church family. We love the brotherhood. And then he says, you uh, fear God. We revere God. And he uses a different word. He says, honor the king. You fear God. You revere God. But you respect the king. You respect the government. And that attitude of honoring all men Loving the brotherhood, fearing God, and honoring authority, the king in his case, the emperor, that attitude always brings glory to God. And so that's how we choose to interact in our society. In verse 18, he comes to a a more localized case, a more specific case. He's still talking about authority, and he's still talking about submission to authority and obedience to authority, but now he's going to bring it down a little closer to where we live as individuals. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, if if that's the case, and because of your conscience toward God, because of you serving God, you're enduring grief, and and you're suffering wrongfully, that is thankworthy. That's worthy of, of praise. But then he turns it and he says, for what glory is it if when you're buffeted for your faults, 
Oh, you're being punished or rebuked or reprimanded or disciplined, but it's because you did something wrong. When you're buffeted for your fault, for your own faults, what glory is it if you take that patiently? Well, I'm really being a Christian. I did something wrong. I messed everything up. I hurt somebody. I said something unkind or, and I wasn't submitted. I wasn't obedient. I didn't do my job, but I'm taking the discipline patiently. That's no glory to you. You created the problem. He said, but if when you do well and suffer for it, if you take that patiently, you did right, you did your best, you tried, you were respectful and obedient and submitted, and now somebody is coming against you and you take that patiently, well, that is acceptable with God. You see, here's his situation when Peter writes these words. At least one-third of the population of the Roman Empire, at least one-third during the time of the New Testament would have fallen in the category of slaves. Now, some slaves were treated quite well, actually almost like members of the family, but others were treated very harshly. But whether a slave was treated well or treated harshly, they were all owned by their masters. So we have no exact modern equivalent in our wonderful democracy today. We don't believe in having slaves. So we don't have a modern equivalent. However, since the main function of slaves in Bible times was to work for their masters, we can accurately apply the principles that Peter is giving. He's talking about uh, masters and slaves. Today, we would talk about the relationship between bosses and employees. He's still talking about Christians submitting to all secular authority in our lives. Yes, we believe in submitting to the government's requirements. Yes, we believe in submitting to the uh, actions and the uh, requests of police in our city. Yes, we believe in being cooperative members of our community. But we also believe that Christians should be wonderfully incredible employees. They should submit to all secular authority in their lives, and that includes your employer. So here's the main scriptural principle that Peter is teaching. In his day, he says, masters, uh, you are the, the high position. So servants, be subject unto that authority. Servants, be submitted to your masters. But the principle today is the same, just in a modern context. Employees, be submitted to your employers with all respect. Employees, whoever you are, wherever you work, employees, be submitted to your employers with all respect. Now, it's easy, and Peter acknowledges this, it's easy to do that when your boss is kind and patient. Peter says it good and gentle, but he means kind and patient in our modern vernacular. If you've got a, a, got a, a kind boss who's patient with you, uh, it's easy to submit to them and to obey their requests and treat them with respect. But Peter said um, it's harder to do that when your boss is spiteful and stubborn. He uses the word froward. And literally, that means someone who's spiteful. They're hurtful and harmful in their words and actions, and they're stubborn. You can't reason with them. They're froward. 
And the word froward also has the sense of being crooked. So it could even indicate a boss who's unethical or untoward in their actions toward employees. So Peter still gives this principle, however. He says, servants be subject to your masters. We would say, employees be submitted to your employers, not only to the kind and patient, but also to the spiteful and stubborn. Now, there's a commandment that's going to take you more than an hour to learn how to practice in your daily life. But this is the word of God. The question is, what should you do when you have a bad boss? What should you do? The word thankworthy here, when he says, you know, it, it, it's thankworthy, the word thankworthy gives the sense of graciousness, being uh, full of grace. And it's combined with the sense of the word commendable or it's approved. So when he's referencing the word thankworthy, what he's saying is both God and man are pleased when your attitude is gracious in every circumstance. When you as a Christian remain gracious to everybody, no matter how they treat you, no matter what their action or reaction is toward you, when you remain gracious, it is thankworthy. You have that sense of graciousness, and it is commendable. It is approved. And both God and men are pleased when somebody is gracious in their attitudes, their words, and their actions. But I will be honest with you and say that sometimes it takes a lot longer with man for them to become pleased with your graciousness. God's pleased immediately. It may take a while with your boss. But remember, as a Christian... You are actually not just working for your boss. Wherever you are, you are working for God. So here's what Peter just told us. If you endure hardship and unfair treatment on your job for the sake of your Christian testimony, God himself will reward you. You will receive a great reward. But if it's your own bad attitude and your own poor work ethic that results in you being disciplined or punished or, or fired, can I just say this? The Lord, in that case, he has the same attitude as my parents did when I was in grade school. If the teacher has to punish you at school, you're going to get a second punishment when you get home. That was their attitude. Well, God has the same attitude. If because of your lousy attitude and your terrible work ethic, your boss disciplines you, guess what? When you come talk to me, I'm going to discipline you too. I'm your heavenly father. I'm not happy when you do that. Now, of course, the human tendency is always to fight back and demand our rights. And we are now in our society, in our education system, through media, we are now trained that everybody's a victim and everybody should demand their rights and everybody should get offended at everything. It's just a, a terrible, politically correct, you talk about a virus, that's the virus that we've really got. It's political correctness. It's our human tendency to demand our rights and fight back. But that is the carnal response of an unsaved person. Anybody can fight back, but it takes a spirit-filled Christian to submit to the wrong for the sake of their testimony and let God fight their battles. I don't care whether it's in your home, on your job, in your community, wherever it may be. 
as a Christian, you shouldn't be fighting back. You should hold your peace. You should submit to the wrong for the sake of your testimony, for the sake of the kingdom. And when you do, the old song says, if I hold my peace and let the Lord fight my battles, victory shall be mine. That's how it works scripturally. And if you think, well, wait just a minute, pastor. You don't know my situation. You don't know my boss. You don't know what I'm going through. I should be able to fight back. I should be able to stand up for myself. I have rights. I have perks and privileges. And if you think you shouldn't be required to take the wrong, then I want you just for a moment to think about your Savior. And Peter does too, because here's what he says next. Verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Now here's how he describes Jesus. Who did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But what did Jesus do? He committed himself to him, his heavenly Father, that judges righteously. If anyone ever had a right to fight back, it was Jesus. He is our example in the way that he responded to unfair treatment and to suffering. You see, these people that Peter is writing to, they were experiencing times of great suffering. The word suffering is used very often in this epistle of only five chapters. And sometimes we experience suffering and unfair treatment. And these words and these principles and the example of Jesus apply to us just as much. You see, Jesus did not retaliate in anger, nor did he respond with guile. That means deceit. He didn't kind of craftily try to get out of the situation or lie about somebody. He didn't accuse or vilify his persecutors. The Bible says they reviled him, but he refused to revile them. He, he, he didn't accuse them. He didn't push back against them. He didn't vilify them and attribute all kinds of wrong, evil motives to them. He didn't say anything. He did not make threats toward any of them. He, he threatened not. Can you imagine what kind of a threat the son of the living God could have given to the council, to the Roman guards, uh, to Pilate in the judgment hall, to King Herod, to anybody else, to the Sanhedrin? He could have threatened them for sure, but he didn't. When he suffered, he threatened not. So what did he do? Instead of all of those reactions, which are so common to the carnal mind and to the unspiritual, unsaved, unregenerated human being, that's what everybody does. They fight back. They demand their rights. They push back against unfairness. But instead, Jesus surrendered his life to a just God when he was faced with an unjust situation. And Peter said... He's our example. He's our pattern. When you are faced with an unjust situation, 
stop for a moment, take a deep breath and realize I'm an apostolic believer. My testimony in my community is more important than winning my rights. My testimony on my job is far more important than me being vindicated. My testimony among my unsaved family members and friends is more important than me walking out of here feeling smug and satisfied that I won the argument. When you're faced with an unjust situation, follow the pattern of Jesus. He didn't retaliate. He didn't talk back. He didn't threaten. He didn't accuse any of his enemies who were doing terrible things to him. When he was faced with an unjust situation, he just committed his life to a just God. And we can do the same thing because God will not be a debtor to anybody. And while your uh, enemies, while your boss, while people in your life might be unfair to you, God will never be unfair to you. Now, Peter continues from that and he does uh, maybe an abrupt turn almost because once Peter gets talking about Calvary, He can't resist preaching a little bit of the gospel. He just can't help himself. Here's what he says next in verse 24. He's talking about Jesus, remember, and how he didn't retaliate and how he committed himself to a just God in the middle of an unjust situation. Here's what he says. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should now live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed. I speak that over somebody that's watching and listening right now. By whose stripes ye were healed. It's as real, it's as secure, it's as firm as Calvary. By his stripes, you were healed. For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Boy, once he gets talking about Jesus, he can't help going to the cross. Jesus' response to his suffering wasn't just a good example for us to follow. It is that in every measure. But it wasn't just a good example. Jesus' suffering provided redemption and healing for us. He bore all of our sins in his own body as he hung on the cross. And this is what's so amazing. When Jesus died... Because he had taken all of my sin and your sin and the sin of the world into himself. When he died, the power that sin had over me, it died when Jesus died. So now I am free to live unto righteousness because I am dead to sins through the blood of Jesus. It only takes one trip to the cross to have his blood wash over your life and begin a journey of deliverance and freedom and liberty. And by the way, his blood didn't just pay the price for my sins. It paid the price for my healing as well. When he was whipped and beaten, those stripes, every stripe that was laid on his 
back was a stripe that delivered me from sickness and pain and the results of the curse. 39 stripes. In the Old Testament, the sheep died for the shepherd. They would bring a lamb to the temple or to the tabernacle and they would offer that lamb and the sheep would die for the shepherd. But at Calvary, the shepherd died for the sheep. You see, every sinner is like a sheep gone astray. And the Bible does refer to those of us that are saints in the church as sheep. And don't be insulted here, but sheep in this context, they're lost and they're kind of ignorant. They're wandering in danger. They're unable to help themselves. Sheep, just a dumb animal called a sheep. But our shepherd, the gospels tell us, he went out to search for the lost sheep. And the gospels end with the good shepherd, the great shepherd, dying for the lost sheep. And Peter, he can't help himself. He's into preaching mode now. And he said, you were as sheep going astray. That's your past life. That's your old life. That's how you were before you found God. That's how you were before you became part of his church. He said, you were as sheep going astray. But now you have returned. You are now returned. You've repented. That's what repentance is. It's a return to the purpose that God created you for. It's a return to what God planned for your life before you were ever born. You may have taken a long journey into the degradation of sin, but you can return to the plan God had for you. That is the privilege of repenting. That's the privilege of saying, Jesus, I'm sorry and I need you. And that is such a blessing in our lives. Repentance. We have now returned. We are now safely in his care. And he lovingly watches over us, saints of God. The word bishop literally means one who watches over. It's an overseer. That's who Jesus is to us. We have now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of our souls. The one who watches over you every day. Hmm. He has not forgotten you while you feel so isolated. And as we do have people in our church family that they live alone and they're, they're feeling this so intensely right now. We have people in our church family that they don't get out uh, at the best of times as well as some of us do. And they feel so lonely and so isolated right now. Many of their connections to their church family and even to their natural family have been cut off by self-isolation and quarantines and all of that. But let me tell you, saint of God, wherever you are right now and whatever you're going through, you have a shepherd and a bishop, a, a, an overseer. He watches every moment of your life. He loves you deeply and dearly and he's concerned. If it's big enough for you to worry about, it's big enough to take it to him in prayer. If it concerns you, it concerns him. He watches over us. What a blessing. So yes, to go back to Peter's theme here, he's been talking about suffering and how we do well in suffering and how we follow Jesus' example in suffering. So let me tell you that yes, the unsaved world is watching you as you suffer. They're watching your words. They're watching your walk. 
They're watching your actions and your reactions. They're watching you. But please know that your shepherd is also watching you as you suffer. He feels what you feel. But he knows more than you know. And he has a purpose in your pain. And he's watching every moment. And he is a deliverer. And he is a healer. And he is a savior. My goodness, I feel God's presence right now. I'm recording this before you will see it. But I believe there's going to be a moment of spiritual connection as you see this right now. And I'd like you to just take a moment, and I'm not quite finished. I'm almost finished, but I want to pray one more time. Lord Jesus, right now I feel your spirit quicken me. That somebody, they just need to be made aware from your word. Not from a preacher. I have no authority, but your word has authority. And they need to be made aware that you are watching them, that you are observing them, that you have not abandoned them, that you are walking with them. You're right there beside them as they uh, hear these words and they see uh, this media. You're right there beside them. And you're concerned and you care. You're good enough to be concerned, but you're great enough to do something about it. And Jesus, I pray that you would draw close by your spirit right now to whoever that is that you quicken to my heart right now. In Jesus' name, I pray it. My goodness, I feel the presence of God. Now, Peter has presented Jesus as our example to follow in our relationships with others. He's taught us we are to be submitted and obedient to men, to authority, And we are submitted and obedient to our authorities. Whatever authorities it may be in your context. We are submitted and obedient to them knowing that this pleases and honors God. So really, it's not even so much you're submitted and obedient to them. You're being submitted and obedient to God by honoring and respecting them. So yes, that is true with the government That is true with our law enforcement. That is true with all of our officials. Yes, it is true with your employer, your boss, your team leader in your workplace. Yes, it's true there. But it is even more important, maybe exponentially more important, to live this way in your home. And that's where Peter goes next. Chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Now here, Peter addresses Christian wives especially those who happen to live with an unsaved husband. And the principle for wives is the same as the principle he just gave us for employees. Be submitted to your husband with all respect. Now the world, they throw up their hands and say, that's ridiculous, we have rights. But see, Christians, we live by a different standard. We live by the word of God. And the standard is, wives... Be submitted to your husband with all respect. Submission does not mean that the wife is inferior to the husband 
in any way. Remember, Peter just told us that Jesus submitted to the will of God. So submission certainly doesn't mean inferiority. And for all you Christian husbands, headship does not mean dictatorship. Headship is loving authority. You, sir, if you're a Christian husband and father, you are to be the priest of your home. You are to govern your home with loving authority. And that is a huge responsibility when you stop to realize the sacrifice that Jesus made for his bride as the head of the church. Jesus is our pattern and our example, not just at work, not just in our relationship with authority in society. He's our example and our pattern in our homes. But in this particular case, in the first two verses, the husband happens to be unsaved. Peter still tells these wives to submit with all respect, in subjection, coupled with fear, reverence, or respect. So he tells these wives, even though your husband is unsaved, you submit with all respect, and you continue to live out your godly lifestyle. That's what he means when he says chaste conversation, godly lifestyle. You continue to live out your godly lifestyle in the everyday life of your home. Why? My husband isn't even saved. Why would I do that? It's because the beauty of true submission and true holiness is a more powerful sermon than anything you could ever say. Your husband may very well be one to Christ without the word. That's not talking about the word of God. It takes the word of God to save, save us. It's talking about your words. He may be one to God without you having to say a word. Because ladies, godly ladies trying to serve God, and maybe you're the only one in your family, listen to me. Your attitude is more powerful than your argument. So you keep living your godly lifestyle, and you keep showing respect, and you keep submitting and you let God do the work. To my sisters who are serving God alone, trying to be a godly influence on your children and trying to be an authentic witness to your unsaved husband, I remind you one more time that submission and holiness are a powerful combination. First of all, they're an obligation because they're commanded in God's word. But they're also an opportunity they give a silent testimony to others of what Jesus has done for you. But finally, submission and holiness, they're an ornament. That's how he describes it here in this chapter. They're an ornament. They show God's internal work in an external way. If God has done an internal work in your spirit, it will show itself in an attitude of submission and holiness in your external actions and words and attitudes. He continues in verse 3. He's talking about women who have an ornament of submission and holiness. He says, who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. In, in those phrases, he has just nailed all the extremes of pagan Roman fashion. He said, but instead of that, let it be the hidden man of the heart. 
in that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament, here's that word, ornament, holiness and submission are an ornament. It is the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And then he says, it was after this manner in the old time, in the old covenant, that the holy women also who trusted in God, this is exactly how they adorned themselves. They also were ornamented with holiness and submission. He says they were in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are as long as you do well, and you are not afraid with any amazement. Peter admonishes Christian women here, don't major on external ornaments, major on your internal character and spiritual life. He contrasts the artificial, gaudy fashions of the day with the submitted godly spirit of an apostolic wife. Ladies, you don't have to imitate the world to win your husband to the Lord. Your beauty doesn't come from a store. It comes from your meek and quiet spirit. So just like Sarah, choose to be submitted but not intimidated. He says, don't be afraid with any amazement. That means, ladies, you live your life in your home, you serve God first, and you serve your family next. And you be submitted in every possible way. But don't you be intimidated. You are a child of God and you have a testimony. I want to end with this next verse tonight, and I'm so glad you've been part of our Bible study. In verse 1, Peter said, Likewise, ye wives. Now in verse 7, he says, Likewise, ye husbands. Husbands, don't think that. We're just targeting the ladies. Peter says a lot to them because when Peter lives in the New Testament, the world is changing dramatically for women that are serving God. In that society, women were looked on as basically property. But in the church, there's neither male nor free, uh, bond nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. Uh, All distinctions are erased. So women in the church were so valuable to God and to their families and to the church. It was totally different than pagan society. So Peter gives them quite a bit of instruction. But he winds up by giving some very succinct and important instruction to husbands. Verse 7, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So finally, at the end of his paragraph here, Peter has a strong word for Christian husbands who also have a responsibility to live a life that is submitted to God's commandments. Let me say it very strongly and very clearly. Submission is not just for women. Submission is for everyone who calls themselves a child of God. Apostolic men, husbands, fathers, you hear me right now. You have a responsibility to your wife and your family. He's not talking about unsaved husbands now. He's talking about those of us that are filled with the Holy Ghost, baptized in Jesus' name. You are the priest of your home. You have a responsibility to your wife and family. And that responsibility, scripturally speaking, is headship. It is loving authority in your home for your family. And here's how that looks. 
Peter says it in several phrases. He says, dwell with them. Men, when you're home, be home. When you're home, don't be at work. When you're home, be home. Dwell with them. According to knowledge. What does that mean? Learn to meet the needs of your family. You learn their needs if you want to meet their needs. You've got to know your family. You've got to dwell with them according to knowledge. Learn their needs if you want to meet their needs. You won't do that by being detached or always preoccupied with some online thing that you're doing. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Giving honor is his next phrase. You treat your wife like a queen. Peter has just referred to Sarah. Sarah means princess. That's who Sarah was. Sarai was a princess. You treat your wife like a queen. Give her honor. And then he says something strange that's been much debated. Give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now it's very clear from scholarly studies of these phrases that he's definitely not talking about spiritually, mentally, socially, any of those things. He's perhaps referring to two areas of life. One is that the wife is weaker physically. And that's typical if we study anatomy and biology. That a woman would be weaker in her physical frame and her physical strength. So he says, you honor her. Don't you ever lift your hand against her. Don't you ever strike her or hurt her. Give honor unto her as unto the weaker vessel. And perhaps another way, women and men are wired so differently in their emotions. Men, you be very careful. Because while you may have a burst of anger, and you might get over it or be distracted from it, her emotions are different than yours. And when you hurt her emotionally, that may last for a long time in her mind, in her emotions, and in her spirit. So you treat your wife with honor. Give her honor as if she was a rare, precious, even fragile object because she is rare and precious and fragile. And you, sir, have been commissioned to be the priest of your home, to be the head of your home with loving authority. And Peter winds up his comments by saying, you be heirs together of the grace of life. Literally, as you live your life together and as you raise your family and as you are members of a church, you have mutual submission one to another because you're heirs together. Now that you're married, you don't get to do this thing alone. Not if you're two Christians in a home. You don't get to do this alone. You are heirs together. And you will have a lifetime of grace. You're heirs together of the grace of life. If you express grace, kindness, love, favor toward one another, you will be heirs together of the grace of God. And why do we do all of this? Why, men, is this so important for you as the leader of your home? Here's why. That your prayers be not hindered. Your home life affects your church life. And your marriage affects your spiritual life. Your relationship with God, 
male or female, husband or wife, mom or dad, son or daughter, your relationship with God can be significantly hindered by tension at home. The most important place, and boy, are we learning it right now. The most important place to be an authentic apostolic Christian is at home. And how do we accomplish this, Peter? Oh, it's easy. Be submitted with all respect. That's what I've been telling you. When it comes to government, be submitted with all respect. When it comes to your workplace, be submitted with all respect. When it comes to evildoers that come against you, be submitted with all respect. When it comes to your home, be submitted with all respect. If we have revival in our marriages, we will have revival in our homes. And if we have revival in our homes, we can't help but have revival in our church. I've said this many times over the last month and a half that I really believe that God has sent his church, all of us, into the secret place. We've all said it. If I just had extra time for prayer, if I just had extra time for reading the Bible, oh, I would do it, Pastor, if I had the time. Well, God arranged for you to have the time. What are you doing with it? Because if your home becomes a little church community, then this church will be blessed because our homes are strong. Let me pray for you before we head our separate ways tonight. Lord Jesus, what an honor and privilege it is to teach the people of God. What a great joy it is to teach people who don't resist the word, but they receive the word. And tonight in these verses of 1 Peter, your word has been very practical, maybe even hard-hitting, maybe even confrontational. Lord Jesus, we don't resist your word. We receive it and we submit to it. And help us to learn these principles so our relationships can be blessed and most of all, so our marriages and our homes can be blessed. Lord Jesus, I pray that there would be a wave of forgiveness that would sweep through our homes where there's tension, where there has been issues and problems. I pray a wave of forgiveness would sweep through our homes and it would start with husband and wife and then it would affect every other member of that precious immediate family. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to how our marriages affect our families and how our families affect our church. Lord Jesus, let the Holy Ghost fall in our homes. Let healing happen in our homes. Let miracles be done in our homes. Right now, we've got nothing but our homes. We have to have you in our homes. Minister in the way that only you can. I give you thanks on behalf of our precious church family and all of our precious families that make up this church. I give you thanks, Jesus. I know you're going to do something special. And I bless them tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being part of Bible study tonight. I love you.